You're listening to Episode 3 of the IU Talks podcast series produced by the Independent Evaluation Unit at the Green Climate Fund. In this episode, Dr Joe Puri, Head of the IU, provides an overview of impact evaluation methods. The discussion took place during a workshop in Mannheim, Germany, on April 15, 2019. The workshop was conducted by the IEU's Learning-Oriented Real-Time Impact Assessment, better known as LORTA. LORTA is designed to answer a number of questions, such as how much change is caused by the GCF's investment, who benefits and how. LORTA also helps inform programs and projects in real time of their likelihood of success, allowing program and project implementers to adjust their approach. Additional information about the LORTA program can be found on our website at ieu.greenclimate.fund. If you have questions or comments about the IEU podcast, tweet us at gcf underscore e-v-a-l using the hashtag IEUpod. people 
by bad air, by, uh, by people being infected, other people being infected by cholera. There was a wonderful priest who came along in London and he basically said, there's a complex system of reasons that can lead to cholera, right? So you can be living in poor, people associated cholera with poverty, people associated it with what's called bad air or miasma, people associated with a whole lot of other reasons. So it was very complex. What impact evaluations, and that's when impact evaluations started, helped him to do is to identify the cause of cholera. And how did he do it? He found that there was, if you created, if you had two types of water system coming from two different sources, around one set of water pipes, you did not find a huge amount of cholera incidence. And on the other side, you did find a huge amount of cholera incidence. One proved to be the comparison group for the other. But with that, he was then able to identify that even in a complex universe, you can start to think about single causal relationships. So hold that thought in your mind. I'm hoping that as we go along, we'll be able to sort of clarify what are these, what are called confounding factors in complex systems. Okay, how many of you know about Progressive? Okay. So, Progressa in 1995 was this big traditional cash transfer program that started in uh, Mexico. So at that time, it was a really interesting idea, uh, but there was only funding for essentially 500 communities. And it was a cash transfer where you were giving vulnerable households 10 to $12 per household. Now, there was a new president that had become president of Mexico at that time, and he wanted to understand, well, what is the 10 to $12 per household per month getting us? They set up an impact evaluation, and they found a few things. First, it was a well-targeted program. As you can imagine, when cash transfers first started, there was a big problem of detractors, the opposition saying, Oh no, if you give poor households money, they're going to spend it on alcohol and drugs. There were also journalists who came and basically said that this is going to go to households that are already very rich, so it's pointless giving it to them, right? But the impact evaluation found that it, it was a well-targeted program. It was going to households that were otherwise quite poor. Second, it found that just in two years, school enrollment increased by seven-tenths of a year as a consequence of the cash transfer. So it helped you to quantify what was happening as a consequence of the conditional cash transfer. The third is that there were anthropometric measures, so the weights of babies was increasing after they were getting conditional cash transfers. And fourth, the incidence of illness was going down. How was the conditional cash transfer working? It was working because households were only getting the 10 to $12 at the end of the month if they could prove that they were going to, if their children were attending classes for 80% of the days, of the days during that month, and or if they had a woman of childbearing age, then she needed to have gone to the clinic during the month. That then, after two, two years of Progressive being on 
the ground and being implemented, they found <coughs> these interesting results. There were two things that stood out to me. First, this program, when it first started, it was only a $2 million program. And the president at that time of Mexico was very beleaguered. He was basically told that, you know, this is the only time that you can do this program. When the results of the impact evaluation came out, he could say this in quantifiable terms. He could say seven-tenths of a year increase in school, in school enrollment. He could also say that there is a reduction in incidence of illness in quantifiable terms. And this was the point that York was making as well. Communication of, of the result of your investment becomes far sharper, far easier if you set up these impact evaluations because you don't have to wave your hands. You can sort of say, with 95% confidence. Yeah, that's your statistical confidence. With 95% confidence, we can say that these results were occurring as a consequence of our investment. That's extremely powerful. You don't have to say anything else. The second thing that stood out to me was, as a consequence of this evidence, this program, which is just $2 million, just funded for $2 million, became scaled up to $5 billion. Yeah, by 2000, it was an order of magnitude increase in the program size. It became scaled up to the entire country. And over the years, no single politician has been able to displace this program because the effects of the program are so well documented and credibly reported. And that's the power and seduction of impact evaluations. You can make these conclusions in a confident way and you can quantify them. Right? So it helped them to, spot, to scale up the program as well. And of course, now in Mexico, this program is called Opportunidades. So the name has changed, but the program has stayed in place. Okay, so basically what it used was, was a random sample of 506 eligible communities. In 1995, when it started, it was only 506 eligible communities. And there was something called random assignment. As we go along, we talk about what random assignment means and how you can use it in your programs. Okay. So, what's so difficult about this, right? Very, there are very few evaluations in my life that I've seen have, you know, single sentences that say, the program caused this effect. This sentence, if you see, ever see this single sentence at the end of an evaluation, even if it's just one page long, it's one of the most powerful sentences you can have in an evaluation. And let's think about why. First, it, ha it identifies what the project is. In this case, this is just a made-up example. But it's basically saying, this is a project, some GCF adaptation project. So it identifies it. Very few evaluations would actually tell you what they are doing and who they are doing it to. Yeah, and what are their key actions. That's the first. The second is it identifies who's your target group for smallholder farmers. Here, the target group are my smallholder farmers. The third is, it's saying income. So it's identifying a key impact indicator in this one sentence. Very few projects will say, what is our primary or our key impact indicator? Fourth, it's saying there was an increase. So it's telling you the direction of that change. Again, very, very few evaluations 
confidence, statistical confidence. This is important. Um, next, it's saying 7%. It could be anything. It could be 25%. It could be 110%. But it's giving you a number. Yeah? Very few projects will actually come out with giving you a number and saying, okay, we can say with 95% confidence that we made this difference. And then last but not least, it's using a verb. A verb called cause. This is really the most powerful verb that you can use in the sentence. It's basically saying it's the investment that caused the difference. Yeah? It wasn't something else. It wasn't the complex characters of other you know, macroeconomic effects that were taking place in the economy at the same time. It wasn't some other government policy. It was this project, and this is what caused the difference. That's why. Okay, so thinking about this, again, I'm going to use the slide that Solomon did. What's common to all these evaluations that we think about when we think about impact evaluations? They answer four questions. Did the program cause the change? Would the change have occurred anyway, even in the absence of the program? Third, if the program caused the change, how much was that change? So remember the sentence I put up. What's the quantified difference that's being caused by the investment? And last but not least, are there cheaper ways to get the same change? Right? And all of these beg for what's called a counterfactual or a comparison group. Because in all of this, you're thinking about can you attribute the change that is occurring to the investment? This attributable change, you will hear all of our colleagues talk about attributable change over the next two and a half days. Can you attribute it to the investment? That's huge. So that's what we want you to think about as you go along. Okay, so what if we didn't do impact valuations? So let's think about this, and let's think about some of the data that you all get in your projects. And what we need to measure. So, I'm going to use an example of providing cash transfers to disadvantaged and low-income groups. And um, I'm going to, this is setting up the exercise that all of you will do as well. So, in most projects, yeah, suppose we are thinking about, the outcome that I'm thinking about is, well, uh, what is the proportion of people that are living in the communities that we are targeting that have achieved a certain level of income? And let's assume my intervention is a cash transfer program. Right? So at the end of a, this program, a lot of project reports will say, we were really successful. Guess what? 92% of the people living in our target groups basically achieve the income level that we said we, they would. 92% is a pretty good looking number. Right? It basically means that only 8% did achieve that income level that you were targeting. So by any metric, you would think, okay, well, you know, this project has to be successful. And this is basically the number or the data that most projects have. Majority of evaluations have just this information. What happened at end line? Did we achieve the target or not? And the number looks usually quite good, 92%. And you're like, okay, I've achieved everything I wanted. Now uh, we are successful. <coughs> but of course, with this, we can say absolutely. 
means I made less of a difference in my project area compared to the areas that weren't getting the DCF intervention. Probably they would have been better off without the DCF intervention. There's a minus six percentage point difference being caused by the intervention. So suddenly we've gone from, oh, we are so cool, and we are making a 92 percentage point difference to, oh, it's actually minus six. And this is what we're asking. And actually, in many cases, the example reverses. You have macroeconomic shocks, and a lot of funders will come and tell you, well, you didn't make a difference. With macroeconomic shocks, such as, um, you know, you could go into a debt crisis, etc. With your projects, you can actually show that even though your numbers are, you know, what was equivalent to baseline, in the absence of your intervention, because there was a macroeconomic shock occurring at the same time, your project area would have been worse off. That's what impact evaluations can help you do. This is what is called a double difference. Yeah. So a double difference basically helps you look at before, before, after for both project and for comparison areas. Okay, so what do we need to measure impact? You need data for your before, for your project area, but before the intervention. You need data for your comparison area, but before the intervention. You need data for your project area after the intervention. And you need data for your comparison area <coughs> after the intervention. But just one data point is clearly not sufficient because you need large numbers to avoid statistical bias. So you need a lot of data points for each one of these squares because that's where low large numbers come in. Yeah? And for those who don't know low large numbers, absolutely fine. Think of the toss of a coin. You do it five times, you do it ten times and you get eight heads and two tails, and you think it's an it's a biased coin. But that's not true. It's when you get to a thousand tosses of a coin that you get to know actually as to whether the coin is unbiased or not. You should then, in the thousand, in a thousand flips of a coin, get to 500 heads and 500 tails, right? But with 10 tosses of a coin, you can't conclude whether the coin is biased or unbiased because the sample size is too small. So sample sizes make a big difference. And that's why you need to have large number of observations for each one of these. 